Good afternoon, one and all, and welcome to the Grateful Dad Radio Hour, a conversation about men at home, at work, and at play, with your host, Doug Gertner, the Grateful Dad. Every week, Doug is joined by fascinating guests who tell their own authentic stories and explore all that it means to be a man. And now, here's your host, Doug Gertner, the Grateful Dad. Thank you, Cameron, and thank you, moms and dads, boys and girls, for tuning in today to the Grateful Dad Radio Hour right here on MileHighRadio.com. I'm Doug Gertner, the Grateful Dad, happy to be settling back in here at these wonderful studios in Denver, Colorado, dry Denver, Colorado, where I am after a couple of weeks away after... uh, Celebrating the Jewish holidays and the Labor Day holiday and um, a lot of celebrating happening and we're going to keep our celebration going today. My guest uh, joining me shortly is Professor Abby Ferber calling the show White Man Falling after her book of the same name and we'll be talking about the confluence of race and gender and white supremacy. You'll uh, hear about men who are involved in uh, race-based hate organizations what they uh, join, what they're about, and uh, why. And uh, all that is coming up shortly. Uh, Fascinating, uh, no doubt a provocative and timely topic. And I hope you'll let other people know that that's what we're talking about today on the Grateful Dad Radio Hour. Since you're on your computer listening now, um, a simple email would probably do the trick. Tell them to point their browser to milehighradio.com. That's where they can do as you are and tune into today's broadcast. Or um, pick up that smartphone of yours and text them. And if they're not at a computer, they can use the TuneIn Radio app, a free app for iPhones and Androids and the like. TuneIn Radio is the app they need to uh, load on their uh, smartphone and then uh, just put Mile High Radio in the search function there and they'll get themselves uh, a mobile way to follow our show and all the great programming on Mile High Radio. Also, uh, I guess you could multitask here, pick up the phone, give someone a call and say, hey, <laughs> Doug's had some interesting guests on before, some provocative topics to be sure, and today is uh, certainly going to be interesting and somewhat provocative, our topic, uh, white men and white supremacy. So email, text, call. If you want to get through to me, one good way might be through Twitter. My handle is at Doug Gertner. And if you want to stay in touch, like me on Facebook, it's The Grateful Dads. The Grateful Dads, plural, is uh, the homepage for this show and all of my other Grateful Dad activity. Or you can just find me on Facebook at Doug Gertner and be my friend and uh, look at my pictures and all of that. I'm loving being here at MileHighRadio.com, and one of the great things is that you can hear archives of my recent shows. Uh, Dr. Sam Sappington came in, and we talked about uh, his work with men who have been uh, returning from combat and uh, the trauma that they bring back um, that often isn't visible physically but is clear psychically. Um, also, Rabbi Brant Rosen was my guest, and that's in the archives as well. We talked about uh, what's really happening in the Middle East and specifically the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And um, in honor of uh, the 
50th anniversary of the historic March on Washington, I talked about, uh, we called it Black Men Rising, Mike Thompson and I, about his work as an elder in the African-American community, working with young African-American men and the good work that he does. That's all on demand on my show page at milehighradio.com. Coming soon, in fact, a week from today, I'm finally uh, happy to welcome, for the first time as my guest, the bobblehead dad, Jim Higley, who really celebrates the vanilla moments in life. He's got an amazing story of recovery from cancer and a lot of stories about his life and work. So join me September 23rd right here at 1 o'clock Mountain Time on milehighradio.com as Jim Higley, the bobblehead dad, is my guest. And then September 30th, the week after, uh, live in the studio. I'm glad that uh, Sam Sappington is coming back. He's coming through town, and so I'll have him live in the studio. Our conversation that day is going to address the question, can gay and straight men be friends so uh two old friends talking about their friendship and uh that dynamic can gay and straight men be friends as always every week we're gonna feature my moment of gratitude along with the full circle fatherhood report and we always want to thank our sponsors you'll hear about them in a little while emu consulting the men's anthology and the national organization for men against sexism nomas so thanks to everyone for supporting us and thanks to you for tuning in I want to begin, as I always have with this show, um, reflecting on what I'm grateful for. I call it my moment of gratitude. Every day I use my gratitude journal and I note the things for which I'm grateful. And this just continues to remind me that I have so much to be grateful for. And as a result, it seems to bring more and more of the good stuff into my life. So today, after a couple of weeks away, I want to pause and offer my moment of gratitude for various things since we last spoke, as actually chronicled right there in my aforementioned gratitude journal. So since my last show, I've noted right there in my gratitude journal the many things I'm grateful for, including... I was going to say in no particular order, but it's a little bit chronological because my last show here uh, before I was off uh, was the first day that Jordy started high school, or I should say Jordan, as he wants to be called now, started high school, and it's been a success. I uh, Right then I chronicled my health. At 54, I'm feeling good. I'm grateful for economic security. We seem to have enough resources right now, and uh, what a relief that is. I'm grateful to and for my virtual assistant, Lisa Maurer, for adding value to my work. And I realized that uh, after taking a, a, a Pilates class, I'm grateful to the amazing Pilates instructor named Heather for her skill, her knowledge, her wisdom. I'm grateful to a scholar and rabbi in training named Karen Aviv from Judaism Your Way in Denver for helping me to plug into the, to the divine in preparation for those high holy days. She did a program called Reflect repair and renew that really helped me get focused i'm grateful for some extra time that i got with maggie just before she left on a business trip and the extra time with jordy that i got while maggie was away and i gotta say within days and weeks into high school i'm really grateful for jordy's honesty and communication as every day after school he'll actually recount his day to us he'll describe his teachers his classes the students and and much more and i'm just so grateful to him for that 
I'm grateful for some time that I took and the, and the traction that I got and the creativity that came about when I was recently working on some stuff related to the Grateful Dad. And uh, when I get busy, I'm grateful for pizza delivery, uh, especially from Allegra's Pizza in Park Hill in Denver. Uh, when you just don't want to cook, that's that's great to have. I'm grateful for a good night's sleep I got recently because on our new schedule of getting up earlier for high school, it's, <laughs> it's throwing stuff off. And I'm grateful that when I wake up, there's often yogurt and berries and granola, for that matter, a consistently good breakfast. I just got to remember to eat less of it, okay? I'm grateful for the first couple cross-country meets that we attended. My son is out for cross-country, and what a trip to have a high school athlete in the family again. That would be since me, right? I'm uh, grateful for an amazing, deep, and meaningful start to our uh, Jewish holidays that came about as the Jewish New Year began. It was followed by a retreat with my men's group, amazing as well as we connected and laughed and ate and drank and hiked together. And then after we disbanded, I took a challenging, really, really awesome backcountry mountain bike ride on the mountain on the Monarch Crest Trail, and I'm just so grateful for that. I'm grateful for the encouragement of my men's group, the Moose Men. Um, they encouraged me to reach out, and I actually uh, wrote a note to my Uncle Bernie and Aunt Marcia, sent it to them in a holiday card. I just wanted to let them know that they were such great influences in my life. I mean, they are the reason that I'm here in Colorado and doing as well as I am. And so I just wanted to say thank you to them. And that gratitude, as it often does, had immediate payoff. Um, and the powerful conclusion of that um, was that during the days of awe, the end of our holidays, uh, I spent part of it with Uncle Bernie, along with Maggie and Jordy, and then our family of fellowship and choice, our Havara called Ruach. So, <laughs> wow, there was more there than I thought just going back in my journal for the past couple of weeks. I have so much to be grateful for. Haas, it's amazing what happens when I don't see you for a couple of weeks, but that's my moment of gratitude for a lot. And once again, I'm grateful to everyone for listening to the Grateful Dad Radio Hour today. I do encourage you to make a habit of being grateful and want to ask the same question of Haas. What are you grateful for today? Wow. Well, number one, I'm grateful for being high and dry. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for friends, and, and I know I've said this before, but... You know, when you when you go through tough times, you really find out who your friends are. Uh, I got a chance to uh, go on a, a short motorcycle ride over the weekend mm. on Saturday. Got it in before um, the rains came, oh, which good. was good. It's always good. Mm -hmm. uh, rode with about 100 people that I had never <laughs> met before. Wow. And they were all political activists. Uh, there was a candidate uh, who is running for governor. For the state of Colorado, got a chance to talk to him and some other people, and it, it it was just it was fun being with passionate people. Yeah, these people had a cause and they were very sincere about it, and I salute that. I really do. Yeah. And as you know, we're going to get more and more into politics in the in the coming months, and. I, I just ask people, take a stand, mm -hmm. take a stand and get out and support the candidates of your choice. You know, even if you don't agree with me, I'm okay with that. But, but find out who this, who these people are, find out what they really stand for. Don't, don't just vote for somebody because they have an R or a D behind their name. Find out who they are, 
But uh, so I guess the biggest thing is I'm grateful for passionate people. And uh, as well as uh, my new landlord who took me to his VFW post yesterday. And I got a chance to watch a real fun football game uh, with uh, some people that were all rooting for the same team. And that was that was kind of fun, too. <laughs> Gotta love that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, friends, well, thanks. people, good stuff. And, and, and you mentioned we're grateful to be uh, dry here. You, you and me in the stu- studio seems uh, no worse for the wear. We do want to um, shout out and, and uh, keep in our thoughts, hearts, and prayers, the uh, folks who have lost a lot. Um, we're, we're up to, I think, um, six, uh, five or six fatalities here in Colorado. Um, one uh, statistic with all this rain that really um, made sense to me, and I think it came from our, our, our current governor, although I'm sure he got it from the, the weather service, that if this rain here had fallen in the form of snow, it would have been over a hundred inches, which would have been, you know, paralyzing in its own way. But the devastation in terms of the thousands of homes and the thousands of people displaced, homes destroyed and damaged, um, people still stranded without power, without water, without the ability to, you know, use the, the sewage system that's already overrun. Um, so we, we send out our, uh, all good wishes and encourage you to support these folks. Um, your local Red Cross is a way to touch base with them. Well, thank you. And let me add, I'm also asking this question of, uh, my guest. Uh, Abby Ferber should be calling in and you'll be meeting her later as we talk about her book, uh, White Man Fallen and her work, uh, studying, uh, white supremacy. But at this point, uh, Abby, I think I gave you the heads up on this, but if I put you on the spot now, how do you answer the question, what are you grateful for? Hi, Doug. Thank you. Let me first just say how glad I am to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. Glad Uh, to have you. I am grateful for so many things. I don't think I could list them. Um, But I think it's really poignant to think about what it is we're grateful for in light of the topic that we're going to be talking about today, the white supremacist movement, because their belief system is all focused on uh, what they feel they deserve and are entitled to. Uh-huh. And it's sort of the, the opposite of this attitude of humility and gratefulness for what we do have in our lives. So that's really what I was thinking about when you were talking about all the things you're grateful for. Thanks. Yeah, I, I had time to make a list. And, and yeah, you remind me of uh, a little passage that came up in the liturgy as I was uh, worshiping this weekend as the the, go, the gates were closing on uh, this powerful time. And, and they went the, 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 the phrase went something like, you know, the the only time in my life that I really felt satisfied is when I let myself realize I have everything I need. And it was not a sense of entitlement, but a sense of gratitude. So, um, well, I can't wait to begin our discussion um, momentarily. Thanks to Abby Ferber. We'll be circling back with you shortly. I just want to say again that I'm asking this question of you, my listeners. Take a moment, if you will, and consider what are you grateful for today? Think about it. And if you want to, go to my website, thegratefuldad.org slash shop to get a copy of The Grateful Dad's Journal of Gratitude and start keeping your gratitude journal today. The other feature that I uh, like to include each week at this time is is what I call um, the Full Circle Fatherhood Report. It's a little update 
based on my contribution to the men's anthology titled Ordinary Men, Extraordinary Lives, Defining Moments. They're a sponsor of our show. I'm grateful to Jim Sharon, the editor, for not just including me in the book, but uh, continuing to support me in my work here on milehighradio.com. Um, my, uh, my piece in the book was titled Full Circle Fatherhood, How I Lost My Mother and Became the Grateful Dad. And um, so this is just uh, what's been happening in my life recently. The Full Circle Fatherhood this week is titled Names Slash Changes. Names Changes. Because what's in a name, really? I mean, what makes someone change their name once it's given to them? As I mentioned, my son started high school a few weeks ago after nine years at the same small independent school where he'd been since kindergarten. Jordy now attends a large, diverse urban public school. And with this major change in his educational routine, I've noted that my son now calls himself by his given name, Jordan. Now, actually, I noted that he tried this on initially during our summer trip to the Middle East, where we actually visited the country of Jordan, and several times we saw and crossed the Jordan River. And now he's going by Jordan. This name change seems fitting and appropriate for my teenage son, who also went from wearing his hair very, very long for many years to cutting it short just in time to explore high schools. In both cases, I'd say with both choices, his hair and his name, he wears it well and naturally and is clearly comfortable with who he is and how he shows up. Name change was also a theme when I eulogized my father last February for his old friends and associates back in Ohio. On the advice of a friend of mine who'd lost his father a few years before me, I sought to tell those gathered in memory of my dad's passing a bit about his early life that they would not otherwise have known. Here's what I said in that eulogy. To begin, I said, I'll tell you something about my dad that nobody here would know and that I only learned in the last half dozen years as it has to do with his name, Mark, M-A-R-C. This was shared with me by my paternal grandmother, his mother, Nana Pearl Gertner. May she rest in peace. Her maiden name was Marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, and that was the first name she gave to my dad. To hear my dad tell it, he never really liked that name, and he legally changed it and shortened it to Mark, M-A-R-C, retaining the C spelling, which is not too uncommon. As a child, then, I remember inquiring, Now, Dad, why don't you have a middle name? And he'd always give me the quick comeback, Well, son, my parents were too poor to buy me one. <laughs> well, that may not have made sense as I grew up. And imagine my surprise when my grandmother told me many years later that my father's name at birth was actually Marcus Tullius Gertner. Marcus Tullius Gertner. Apparently, she and Papa Louie, of blessed memory, liked the regal Roman sound after Cicero, the great lawyer and orator, much like my father grew to be. Nana told me that little Marcus never liked that his initials for Marcus Tullius made him M.T. Gertner. Empty. Empty Gertner. For nothing about him was empty, certainly not the good head on his shoulders. And my dad soon became just Mark NMI, right? No middle initial Gertner, as soon as he could. And that's how we all knew him. My father's name change also seemed to suit him to his last days. Even with dementia, he loved to greet new people saying, Gertner's the name, law's the game. 
As a child, I asked my father about his choice of names for me, Douglas Matthew. Apparently, my middle name was after an attorney that my father knew and respected. Dad often said he thought I might go into the law and that the name D. Matthew Gertner Esquire would be a distinguished moniker for the barrister he hoped I'd be. Well, as you may have guessed, certainly you know, I didn't study law and I don't go by D. Matthew. Just call me Doug. Well, I have not uh, seen fit to change my name, and in fact, generally, I don't do well with changes of any kind. I have adopted a moniker of my own choosing. I am the Grateful Dad, ever mindful of all that I have to be thankful for, including those lessons learned from my late father and those I'm teaching to and also learning from my teenage son. Whatever names they go by, each is beloved to me, and for is each is beloved to me, And for and to each, I am truly and continually grateful. And that's the Full Circle Fatherhood Report. I'll post it soon on my blog at thegratefuldad.org. Children and all that jazz, a litany list of names from Joan Baez off of Diamonds and Rust. I love that one. You're listening to the Grateful Dad Radio Hour on milehighradio.com. I'm Doug Gertner, your host, The Grateful Dad, and um, I'd like to get to our topic and our guest today. Um, the topic of the show is the same as her book. I'm calling it White Man Falling, Race, Gender, and White Supremacy. Dr. Abby Ferber is Professor of Sociology and Director of the Matrix Center for the Advancement of Social Equality and Inclusion at the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. As I said, she's author of the book White Man Falling, Race, Gender, and White Supremacy, also co-author of the American Sociological Association's Hate Crime in America, What Do We Know?, and Making a Difference University Students' of color speak out. She's co-editor also with our friend Michael Kimmel of a reader titled Privilege and the editor of Homegrown Hate, Gender and Organized Racism. Dr. Ferber has also co-edited two recent volumes, The New Basics, Sex, Gender and Sexuality, and The Matrix Reader, Examining the Dynamics of Privilege and Oppression, both designed for classroom youth. Abby Ferber is widely recognized as a leading scholar of the far right, and her articles have been widely published in academic journals, as well as news outlets, including the Denver Post, Huffington Post, and the Chronicle of Higher Education. Dr. Ferber received her Ph.D. and master's degrees in sociology from the University of Oregon and her Bachelor of Science from the American University in Washington. She currently teaches both undergraduate and graduate courses in the areas of race, gender, and sexuality. So here to discuss race, gender, privilege, and to help us unpack the violent tendencies and tragic results from white supremacy on today's edition of the Grateful Dad Radio Hour, we welcome Dr. Abby Ferber. Hello again. Hi. Thank you again, Doug. I'm so glad to be here. I'm I'm glad you're here, too, and I I didn't yet recount um, our first meeting. Um, 
the the short version um, you may recall was I was giving one of my not so academic lectures uh, called <laughs> "Who Were the Grateful Dead and Why Were They Always Following Jews Around?" About my crazy notion, we're going to talk about one of these days on this show about why so many Jews follow uh, or followed the Grateful Dead. And after I made a point or two in my session, you reached out to me back in the day when we used to write letters to one another, and you dropped me a three-page letter that sounded like a sociology professor's critique of a uh, C or B-minus paper, which would have been about what I would have written at the time. And uh, we've been friends ever since. So, Abby, um, I like to begin, as you know, by asking my guests for a little bit of background to touch on a defining moment in their life, if if it fits, since it fits with uh, our sponsor, uh, the Men's Anthology. In this case, I wonder if your own introduction might include how it is that you became interested and focused much of your own scholarship on race, on gender, and on uh, the topic of, of white men and white supremacy. So uh, a little bit of background and introduction beyond what I've just given. Sure. Thank you. Um, well, I think that was a pretty thorough introduction there, which I appreciate. I uh, was thinking about this question, you know, I really could not identify a specific moment. And I think instead that it's really been part of an ongoing process, which is still continuing. I think examining issues of race and gender in our life is a lifelong process, and I'm still learning and growing. But thinking about sort of the foundations of when that process began, in undergraduate school, I was really interested in focusing on issues of gender, and it wasn't until I began my graduate education that I really started to learn much more about race. And like many white people up until that time, I didn't really think that issues of race and racism were about me. And so they weren't something that I felt personally invested in. I thought it was an interesting subject to learn more about, but that was really it. And then I remember in graduate school starting to read books about the construction of whiteness. And that was really at the beginnings of when all this new research on whiteness, white history, and the ideas of white privilege were really starting to be integrated into academics. And I remember reading a book called How Jews Became White Folks, another one about how the Irish became white. And, you know, those were important moments in terms of Really, for the first time, I started to see that race was about me, that being white impacted my life now you, in ways that I had never thought about. It, it, that makes sense, and that absolutely is a defining moment, even if it didn't just hit you one day and you remember where you were right. and, and how it happened. But, you know, that piece probably needs to, to be unpacked a little bit before we get to the, the bigger issue that you brought, because... As you say, you know, you've been confronting this since graduate school. So, you know, you've got 10, 20 years of, of thinking in these terms. It's something that I certainly have been exposed to and am aware of and have thought about. But if, if listeners aren't there with us and, and mm -hmm. especially if they're white like me and like you, um, that, that notion of, of, oh yeah, I'm white and I have a race too. Is, is, can be a big concept and, and, and can contribute to a defining moment in terms of how we think of ourselves and our own identity. Talk a little bit about that and, 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 you know, about privilege. I mean, I know as a white man that my own privilege is, is often in my blind spot. And, and so mm -hmm. when, when you teach and write about privilege and, and the scholarship that you first encountered, as you said, when you started graduate school, how does it relate to the, 
you know, sort of how we're going to frame our understanding of white supremacy. Sure. Um, just, you know, going back to sort of the beginnings of your question, first thinking about what it means to be white and how whiteness and white privilege impact white people's lives. I think, especially for your listeners, one way that it might be very um, a nice opening to think about what that means is to think about the role of masculinity and manhood in men's lives. Because just like the study of race, really, you know, prior to eight, 1980s, 1990s, there wasn't a whole lot of literature looking at how gender impacted men's lives. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you and I both have taught in women's studies programs, and those programs in their early years were all called women's studies. Now many of them are called gender studies, recognizing that not just women have a gender, men have a gender as well, and our notions of what it means to be a man and what it means to be masculine impact men's lives all the time on a daily basis. All of your opportunities, obstacles, uh, how you express who you are and ways in which what it means to be a man is policed is all about gender. So I think it, it helps to think about that maybe as an analogy for thinking about whiteness and how whiteness affects white people's lives. And of course, one of the you know very classic essays, I think for people just starting to explore what white privilege is and how whiteness affects white people's lives is that classic little piece by Peggy McIntosh about mm. unpacking the invisible knapsack. And anyone can Google that title and come across it very easily. But she takes us through a little exercise thinking about all of the ways in which whiteness and white privilege exhibits itself throughout her daily life. So moving from that to thinking about how does white privilege relate to white supremacy, which is what my early research was on, I've, I've sort of moved across a continuum looking at whiteness from the manifestations of whiteness and white ideology and white supremacist groups to the daily experiences of white privilege. Mm -hmm. And I think they do exist on a continuum. That white privilege is really the system that undergirds white supremacy, and, and white supremacy provides a foundation for white privilege. So the fact that we live in a country that has been white supremacist from its very founding means that white people benefit from white privilege on a daily basis, whether we want to or not. You know, it's not like we have a choice. I can't just sort of walk out and leave my whiteness at home. People see us as white and treat us that way, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. It's fascinating. And when we come back from the break, I think we'll have to drill down some more, obviously, on this notion of the continuum you just described. But as I, as I hear it and try to digest it and, and, you know, restate it, hoping that my listeners have got a better handle than I, I, it's just that in my blind spot of walking around as a white man, um, that privilege is something along a, a continuum that has led the folks you've studied to um, become members of organized hate groups. And that's what we're going to talk more about, as well as your own experience researching it and how it may have impacted you um, not just your scholarship, but personally. My guest is uh, Dr. Abby Ferber, professor of sociology and director of the Matrix Center at the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. Uh, our topic today, we're calling White Man Falling after her book. Uh, Dr. Ferber is an expert in uh, 
in uh, white supremacy. And that's the topic right after we return from this break. Uh, I'm going to find out exactly how you define white supremacy and how you distinguish a political ideology from uh, a set of beliefs and and how your research got started, etc. Stay with us. You're listening to The Grateful Dad Radio Hour. This is milehighradio.com, and we'll be right back. Grateful Dad Radio Hour on MileHighRadio.com. Stay tuned because uh, Mondays at 3 with Greg Giesen may be as entertaining as it's been in a long time. Uh, The Geese, as you know, um, has been divorced for long enough that he would like to be back on the dating scene. And uh, with the encouragement, if not the uh, push from his host, Lisa, co-host Lisa, uh, Greg Giesen is going to be taking questions from three eligible bachelorettes. If that language sounds familiar, it's because they are playing the dating game today on Mondays at 3. There's an hour of music between us, and that may be uh, just what the doctors are ordering, because today on the Grateful Dad Radio Hour, my guest is Dr. Abby Ferber, and um, we're talking about, uh, I've titled the show just by borrowing directly from her book, White Man Falling, Race, Gender, and White Supremacy. Abby, is it fair to ask you for a, a, a definition of what we mean by white supremacy and then from your research, sort of who are these men that we call white supremacists? What do they stand for and what attracts them to these hate groups? Is there a, is there a succinct definition you can give us from all the research and writing you've done um, over the years about the, these groups and these men who uh, inhabit them? Actually, I'm going to say no. Okay. <laughs> I hate to think definitions because I think, you know, most of the time with any definition, reality is actually far more complex and complicated. Mm-hmm. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, you know, when we think of white supremacy, we can think of it as a set of beliefs. We can think of it as a political ideology. We can think of it as a movement that's organized in this nation. But I think really the the piece of white supremacy that's most important is that it's an institution. It's a system. Our nation is structurally white supremacist, right? It's been founded and set up to reproduce and maintain and benefit whites. And so when we talk about what we like to call the white supremacist movement, you know, too often I think that shifts the focus to these people that we tend to stereotype as these kind of crazy lunatic fringe, people walking around with white pointy caps on and ignore the fact that we live in a white supremacist nation. And so I really want to, as I emphasized before, think about white supremacy as a continuum. And certainly those that we think of joining the white supremacist movement are more overtly in support of violence to maintain that system. Uh And so that's one reason we might see them as one end of that continuum. But more importantly to me, in terms of studying the ideology of white supremacy, there's a lot of continuities in the belief system. And so, for example, I've never actually studied individuals in the white supremacist movement. I've studied their writings and the ideologies. But Kathleen Blee is a very well-known researcher of why people join the white supremacist movement. 
And she found that recruits generally enter the movement with the same kind of racist, anti-black attitudes that are found in our general population. Mm-hmm. And it's as they become involved in the movement and in white supremacist organizations that they learn this much broader white supremacist worldview and this view of you know Jews kind of controlling things, being the masterminds, and seeing the white race facing potential genocide. So most people don't actually join the white supremacist movement with a well-thought-out white supremacist ideology. They tend to have sort of the, what we might call, normalized racist views that, you know, about half of Americans possess, and it's really then developed within the movement. You, you, you mentioned something without using this word, but so much of this um, is clearly then fear-based. I'm not suggesting rational fear, but if, if, if I'm white, and I fear that I'm going to lose what I don't even know is my white privilege, then it's, it's that, that fear of being taken over, of, of, um, being overcome by, um, the, the, the group, the groups who, who I perceive as not having the rights to the privilege right. that I have or in threatening me in some way. Um, right. And and then the extreme version of this, as I'm coming to learn from you, um, beyond just referring to a nation um, that privileges those who are white over those who are of color, um, is that 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 the organization into movements is is really the taking of action in the form of violence and hate crimes against um, people of color, and and you also you know mention. That um, there's a perception that the that uh, folks who are Jewish have uh, uh, acquired some sort of power and are pushing all the buttons, and these are the folks you've studied the ideology, you've come to understand through their through their writings. Um, I, I I must note that that you've put yourself out there um, by becoming interested, as you said, your, your process of understanding gender and, and from it, understanding race. Um, and, and as a friend for, you know, going on 20 years now, I have to ask um, this, this must have resulted in some um, attacks on you personally, at least folks who are um, disgruntled or worse with, what you've learned and how you've uh, articulated it. Yes, yes, definitely. And uh, I think that's a, a good question because it kind of follows up on our the previous question and discussion. One thing I wanted to note, just to sort of frame my answer to this, is that if we think about the rise that we see in the movement today, right, there's been a huge jump in the numbers of people actively involved in the white supremacist movement since Obama was elected. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important, I think, contextual piece to understand. And racism within the general white public has also increased dramatically since Obama was elected. And so, again, I think we see that that continuum in which racism at every point along that continuum has increased. And we, we now there's over a thousand hate groups in the United States. And there's been huge proliferation of groups that are called patriot groups which aren't quite as overt in their racism, but certainly they've spiked almost tenfold since Obama's first election. And they focus much more on this idea that the federal government wants to 
take away Americans' guns, destroy their civil liberties, you know, create this one-world socialist government, and see these conspiracies everywhere. So that's just sort of another point along that continuum that in many ways is responding to the context of having an America that has a black president today. And I think that gets back at that issue of fear that you brought up earlier. Certainly, having a black president has raised a lot of fears for people that, you know, perhaps are more dramatic than we would have predicted to begin with. Wow. And then... Wow, just yeah, just then, the the growth in 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 that number yeah. of hate groups. It's it it it, it well, it doesn't surprise me. It does shock me. But yeah, but go on. Yeah. Sure. Um. So, thinking about I, I, what I have found also surprising is that yes, I've been studying white supremacist movement a long time, and in more recent years, I've become uh, much more focused on issues of white privilege and white supremacy within our mainstream systems. And it's been interesting that I find that I face much more backlash for that. And so I think to some degree, it's not so scary for people to, you know, acknowledge that these white supremacist racist groups exist and sort of push them off to the fringe and say, yes, but we're different from them. But I think it's much more threatening for people to recognize those racist beliefs that permeate our social structures and systems and, you know, average people's minds it's not just you know it can't be dismissed as these crazy people so it's 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 us white white people Uh okay go ahead i just i just i'm recognizing as i listen to you that it is us white people who who simply feel entitled and privileged and don't even recognize how privileged we are and it, it, it leads us down a path and, and, you know, yep. none, none of, you know, present company are not active in hate or violence. And yet we're part of a system that is essentially undergirding and in some cases encouraging right. it. Right. And, and all the research finds that people who join the white supremacist movements and patriot groups tend to be often ordinary middle class white people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not that stereotype. So, Thinking about the kind of backlash that I've faced, in recent years I've been involved in the national planning team for the annual White Privilege Conference, Mm -hmm. which is a conference that examines our systems of white privilege and white supremacy. And since I've been involved in that conference, I've faced far more backlash, which I find very interesting. Yeah, what's that about? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think it sort of shows us the way in which that, that work I'm doing now is more threatening in a lot of ways. And what I've been seeing is that, again, this continuum pops up. Mm-hmm. And so, well, I find myself on David Duke's website one year, and we get hate mail all the time and hate phone calls, you know, for people, you know, criticizing that we have this white privilege conference and asking what it's all about because they see white people as under attack and not as privileged today. Oh boy. But at the same time, we see all of these, you know, critiques coming from what might be considered a more mainstream conservative right, places like Fox News and Glenn Beck's website and David Horowitz's website. And there was an article in the Weekly Standard not long ago. And as I find that I and the White Privilege Conference are discussed in those more mainstream sites, I see a corresponding increase in the white supremacist attacks, which tells us something about the way in which those – those organizations exist in sort of this virtual world online 
where there aren't clear borders between these different groups and organizations. So oftentimes it's many of the same people participating in these various websites. And the more mainstream conservative attacks out there on the web then tend to fuel the white supremacist attacks. Does that make sense? Oh, there it does. There's a there's a there's a connection here. Your 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 scholarship and your your um, activities have shifted from you know your early work coming out of grad school on white supremacy to just simply understanding and and helping folks like me understand our privilege as white people, and yet that brings you um, under more scrutiny, under more attack. And the, the, the attacks are coming from, as you say, more mainstream, um, you know, mm-hmm. still, 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 um, right leaning and, and, and firmly kind of right wing organizations and, and media outlets. But then that seems to fuel more activity because the rise in this critique that, that you're receiving as you unpack whiteness and, and help us understand our privileges also seems to fuel, um, I mean, certainly the rise of hate since um, mm-hmm. in, the, in these last uh, uh, six years um, under Barack Obama. Right. Hmm. Well, look, as you know, one of the precipitating events that, that led me to invite you on the show today was an assassination that, that took place earlier this year right here in, in Colorado. And I'm just going to remind folks who may not be aware and, and get your thoughts on this. I do want to steer back to something more hopeful, including the work you're doing with the White Privilege Con, uh, Conference. But on March 19th of 2013, Tom Clements, who was the, at the time the head of the Colorado Department of Corrections, was shot dead at his home in Monument, Colorado. That's, I mean, you, you drive through there every day when you right. uh, drive to work. So you you know where I'm talking about. If, if folks are unfamiliar with the case, it's just a horrible story. Clements, um, he, he'd been handpicked by Governor uh, John Hickenlooper. He'd uh, done similar work in Missouri, and it's almost like he was brought out of retirement to come and do, uh, and, and he did. And in, in his time as corrections chief, he did a lot to reform and improve the prison system here in Colorado. And on the evening he died, Tom Clements actually opened his front door to see a man dressed in the uniform of a Domino's pizza delivery driver. That man was allegedly uh, named Evan Ebel. He was uh, recently mistakenly, it turns out, mistakenly paroled from the judicial system from prison here in Colorado. Um, and just days before, he's also suspected of murdering a young father who was moonlighting doing pizza delivery. He stole the uniform, and, and that's the uniform that um, Evan Ebel wore to gain access and kill Tom Clements. So um, those who've uh, investigated this suspicion is linked to Evan Ebel and this assassination to members of something called the 211 Crew, which is a white supremacist gang formed in Colorado's prisons in the 1990s. They've also been linked, by the way, to other assassinations, including the murders of a district attorney and a prosecutor in Texas. So, Abby, where do crimes like this fit into this whole race, gender, privilege dynamic that you've studied and continue to study and write about? Hmm. Good question. Uh, you know, I think really what's most instructive for us about these crimes is looking at the origins of this organization, which I think you mentioned started in Colorado prisons and provided a recruitment ground for Evan Ebel, who in many ways was what we might consider just an average middle-class white kid who grew up in, right? He grew up, uh, his father was an attorney, very committed father, 
very middle class lifestyle, yes. not at all again our stereotype of someone who will become a white supremacist. And yet, through the context of ending up in prison, was recruited into this white supremacist gang. Apparently, the founder of um, the 211 crew, Benjamin Davis, had saved him from some sort of attack in prison, and so he then owed him, supposedly, and that's what led to the murders, but we don't really know the details. Yes. But it tells us, again, that people don't necessarily join white supremacist groups because they embrace a white supremacist ideology and are looking for a movement to advance those beliefs. It's often many other uh, you know, circumstances of the context people find themselves in that people end up in these groups or end up being recruited and then are, are sort of schooled in the white supremacist ideology and involved in violence and racist violence. So that's one of the things that I find most interesting. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, going back to that issue of the role of men in the movement, it's not, you know, it's not just men. There's many women that are recruited into the movement. Okay. But what's okay. interesting is that it is a highly gendered movement. So men and women are recruited in different ways. And for men, it's often the sort of, you know, the apex of what it means to be masculine in our culture. Uh-huh. We associate, you know, masculinity with violence and aggression and standing up and protecting your family, which white supremacists translate as protecting the race. So, you know, looking at the reasons men and women are attracted to the movement are often very different. So what's interesting, I think, is just the way in which gender plays into their ideology. And it really wasn't until a couple decades ago that we even started to look at the ways in which the movement was gendered. Right. The fact that it was mostly men in this movement meant that people just ignored gender without realizing the ways in which because it's mostly men, it's also not just about race, but about masculinity and about proving one's masculinity through violence. Well, certainly to the extent that that some of these groups have developed um, in in the prison system while men are incarcerated, where um, they are incarcerated, you know, with other men and where right. race is also, you know, my understanding anyway um, of, of why they're founded and how they uh, segregate themselves on the inside as well as, you know, the, the resulting segregation um, here here in society. I, when I, I, I became aware or reminded of the 211 crew after this tragic murder that we spoke of, of Tom Clements here in Colorado, but uh, better known are the Aryan Brotherhood. Um, a, a longer standing group. Their history is, is well documented. Um, when I put this out there yesterday that, that you'd be on here with me, one response I got, um, from, from somebody in the fatherhood movement in, in Colorado was a fondness for a film, American History X. You may recall starring Edward Norton. He was nominated for an right. Academy Award, um, that was, was, um, apparently a fairly accurate and, and well documented, um, dramatization of the Aryan Brotherhood, um, through, through prison life. Um, are these organizations that you've become familiar with in your work? Uh, yeah, certainly. And, you know, what's interesting is the number of organizations that come and go or morph over time, depending mm-hmm. on who mm-hmm. the current leaders are. So they're always sort of in flux. And then I think what's also interesting is just sort of distinguishing between the groups and organizations and 
their presence, especially on the internet, because I think, you know, the internet has sort of changed everything, everything. for this movement. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it's not as important anymore whether someone's actually a member of an organization, but people actively participate in these discussion boards and chat rooms online, mm -hmm. where it's even more difficult than people can use, you know, pseudonyms, and it's hard to even know who's involved. And this ideology becomes, you know, just seeps its way into what we consider mainstream America in ways that are really impossible to track. Mm -hmm. As you talk about that and, and how the Internet has has um, done so much to, to, to kind of um, bring together and, and move forward the, the um, racial hate organizations, mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm, I think it must be for another discussion then that, that in a sense domestic terrorism and, and the, these groups – um, really bear a good deal of resemblance in the way you've described them in some ways to um, international terrorist organizations who find that recruiting and organizing is made easier through the internet. Right. And, and so, you know, suddenly the same people who, um, you know, fear the challenge to their whiteness also, they, they have a lot in common with others that they fear around the world. And um, the hate and the fear, the gender, the privilege and the power all seem to come together here. And it's just been fascinating for me to, to talk with you. My guest is Abby Ferber, and we're talking about white supremacy, um, her, her original work that, that has, you know, stood up over time and continues to attract uh, people like me to talk to her and probably others to attack her is called White Man Falling, Race, Gender and White Supremacy. You can find it on Amazon, of course. Um, I want to try to, to, you know, if I can sum up, it's my heightened understanding that um, the, the very thing that gives me privilege both, you know, in society certainly is the topic of my show frequently about men. And then the less obvious one that I appreciate you bringing to light today is is our own whiteness in a white society. You know, I'm, it's, it's easy for me to say as a Jew, I live in a Christian society and I know what it's like to be the other. Um, but, but, um, I am, I am the dominant culture as white and essentially as male, and I need to unpack that privilege. And, um, before I let you go, um, say a little bit more, even though it's brought you, you know, some scrutiny, it's brought you, I think, a lot of, um, not just uh, respect and appreciation, but your own satisfaction in knowing that the White uh, Privilege Conference is thriving. Tell us a little bit about that. It's There's still time for people to get involved. What's the conference? Um, how does it function, and how can people sure. learn more? Sure. Well, definitely just you know Google White Privilege Conference, and you'll find the website. It's every year in the spring in a different city, and it's been growing stronger each year, which is, you know, really amazing to see. We tend to get over 2,000 people and a lot of return participants. And it's a really unique conference because it bridges academia and activism and everyday sort of looking at anti-racist strategies people can incorporate into their life no matter what they do, no matter where they live, no matter where they're situated, because we encounter privilege and racism and racial inequality in our workplaces, in our schools, in our homes, you know, everywhere. And so it's a wonderful place for people to come together and share ideas and strategies. If you haven't been before, I encourage people to look it up. Uh, a few other really excellent resources I wanted to just take a minute to recommend, if that's okay. Absolutely. Uh, I know I made a lot of statements about our nation, you know, 
essentially having a white supremacist history. And that's something we don't tend to learn about in schools and maybe challenging for people. Mm-hmm. And one excellent book I want to recommend is by Joe Fagan, who was a former president of the American Sociological Association. The book is called Racist America. It's a terrific book. Another one recent, uh, in recent years is Cyber Racism by Jesse Daniels that really takes a look at the impact of the Internet. And then also a, a few great online sources are the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Institute for Research and Education on Human Rights that follow and document the threat of the far right and sort of keep tabs on the ways in which the movement is changing, connections among these groups with more mainstream Tea Party organizations. and uh, So I, I would strongly recommend any of those resources to your listeners. Thank you so much. I appreciate um, those references. Again, you can Google the White Privilege Conference, uh, splcenter.org for the Southern Poverty Law Center, publiceye.org for more research Mm -hmm. advancing this kind of social justice. Abby Ferber, thank you. Uh, My guest has been Abby Ferber, professor at the University of Colorado, uh, at Colorado Springs, White Man Falling, Race, Gender, and uh, White Supremacy. Her uh, first book, still available on Amazon, a fascinating conversation. Uh, I learned a lot, and um, I'm going to continue to to pursue this. Also, um, I'll send along to you uh, the little book that I'm featured in and my recent gratitude journal. With much gratitude to you and to everyone for listening today. I'm Doug Gertner, the Grateful Dad. Stay tuned next week. The Bobblehead Dad, Jim Higley, will join me, and uh, we'll have some conversations about the vanilla moments in life, the joys in that. Until then, I just uh, would like to remind everybody, please be grateful. I'll meet you back here next week on the Grateful Dad Radio Hour. 